This episode of the Bendy Bodies podcast is brought to you by Bowerfine Premium Braces and Supports. Bowerfine promotes mobility and activity through pain relief and improved joint control. Welcome back to Bendy Bodies with the Hypermobility MD, where we explore the intersection of health and hypermobility, focusing on dancers and other aesthetic athletes. This is co-host Jennifer Milner, here with the founder of the Bendy Bodies podcast, Dr. Linda Bluestein. Our goal is to bring you up-to-date information to help you live your best life. Please remember to always consult with your own healthcare team before making any changes to your routine. Our guest today is Dr. Jennifer Crane, physical therapist specializing in circus arts, Bendy Bodies team member, and founder of MyFlex by Cirque Physio. Welcome back to Bendy Bodies. We're so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Thanks for coming back. For people who don't know you, please just tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a physical therapist and, a, and an athletic trainer by profession. And I grew up dancing and doing all sorts of very, you know, kind of the standard childhood artistic athletic endeavors. So I did a bit of gymnastics, a bit of figure skating, uh, but really focused in on ballet. So as I kind of grew up and um, went to college and grad school and became a physical therapist, I very quickly found my niche in circus arts. And that happened when I myself became a circus artist and really just saw what a, what a need there was for um, qualified healthcare providers to work with these types of artistic athletes. And as I continued to work in that um, in that niche, I also discovered that so many of them were hypermobile, whether they were, um, you know, regardless of where they were on the hypermobility spectrum, that was a really big um, commonality that I saw. And so then I started to focus in a little bit more on the hypermobile artistic athlete. And that's kind of where I've arrived today. Nice. Well, you have been very open about not only being hypermobile, but also having a diagnosis of EDS yourself. So what was that diagnosis journey like and how did it shape your choices as an artist? Yeah, my diagnostic journey was very, it was, I think, a little bit atypical or maybe not. But um, really the first time that I heard the words hypermobile in the context of it being problematic versus something to be desired, like in ballet, was in college when I was in um, studying athletic training and then later in graduate school with physical therapy. Um, and the first kind of memory I have of this is any time in physical therapy school that we would be learning how to test for ligamentous stability with like ankle sprains or um, vertebral mobility, kind of like this, the classic tests and measures that we learn as physical therapists to do, I would always be the example for, this is what it feels like when somebody <laughs> has a full rupture of the ankle ligaments of um, even like ACL, all like all of the, the standard ligamentous testing. I was the guinea pig for my classmates to learn what it felt like to have a positive result for that. And I kind of just like laughed about it at the time. And I didn't really start putting any of the pieces together until uh, the end of my physical therapy program. So I kind of, you know, I, I kept hearing all of these hypermobility things, but we didn't, I, I honestly don't even think that we learned anything about EDS or any hypermobility disorders. It was just something that we learned as 
this, you know, some people are looser and some people are not as loose and this is, can be problematic. And we learned about, you know, how to treat the individual joints that were hypermobile, but it was never really put together in um, one cohesive diagnosis. And like, this is the presentation of someone with EDS. And I think that that's changing now in physical therapy schools, but this is um, almost a decade ago. And so it, we just didn't have that as part of our curriculum. So I kind of, I was having kind of the very similar, um, a cluster of different symptoms that didn't really align. I was having some dysautonomia issues. I was having a lot of joint pain. I was a runner at the time, a distance runner. And I was just, I would get so many stress fractures. Um, I had two stress fractures in my ankle and then one in my foot in a very short duration of time. So I ended up at a uh, primary care physician and she basically like went through my medical history and she was like, have you heard of hypermobility disorders or Ehlers-Danlos? And I was like, um, I mean, hypermobility, yes, but I don't know what it means. Like, I don't know what it means for this to be more of a cohesive diagnosis. And so she gave me a very brief rundown of what it was. And then this was a little bit tricky because, you know, I was, I'm in the U S and at that time there were, um, penalties for having preexisting conditions with insurance. And so she kind of explained what it was, what it meant and what treatment options there would be. And then she was like, do you want me to diagnose you with this? And I was like, and then she explained what that would mean. And I was like, no, absolutely not. Like, I, I don't want that to like be an issue or a barrier for me to have healthcare for the rest of my life. And so at that point I was just like, okay, learned a little bit more. This is something that, um, you know, I went on and I learned a lot more about on my own, but it was also something that I, I didn't really fully understand what it meant, or at least put it all together for me as a person until much later. So I had that kind of initial, what I call like a soft diagnosis. Um, and then it really, I didn't get my actual diagnosis until years later. Um, but yeah, I didn't, I, I'm, I'm one of those people that I think a lot of hypermobile humans can relate to where I'm really stubborn and being told that I have this basically fragility disorder. I was like, no, no, absolutely <laughs> not. Like, that's not, that's I, like, I don't want that. I don't identify with that. And, you know, there are a lot of issues with that whole train of thought that, you know, I, I dealt with later. But at the time I was just like, this is not something that I, like, I don't want that narrative for myself. And so I just, that was when I really started to um, think about how I would need to train differently with running at the time. And I was doing a little bit of dancing still. And I was like, okay, so, you know, thinking through what my issues were and how I could address them using what I knew as a physical therapist and athletic trainer. Um, and then later, um, as I started working with circus artists, it was, that was when I feel like I got, it was really, got really interesting and really like a very, like a fun puzzle to solve, to help people understand the implications of this diagnosis and also how to make, how to, how to take care of your body, but also do the things that you love to do in a way that's safe. That was a very long winded answer, but <laughs> it's not a linear process. That's the, it's not a linear process. And I think that's something that we talk about a lot. 
that seems to be, I mean, as, as we say in so many of our podcasts, there there is nothing that is like, oh, this is a typical journey to follow. But if there's something that's typical about it, it's that it is a multi-step process that you first you go, huh? And then you go, wait a minute. And then you go, no. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> and you have these issues that come up and then you sort of chase after them like whack-a-mole. And then somebody says, hey, have you seen this umbrella type thing? And then you start to dive into it and you go deeper and then you just keep going deeper for the rest of your life. Right. Absolutely. So, um, so that, that is in some ways a very typical nonlinear way to get there. Um, so living with EDS is a balancing act in itself. <laughs> and we know that hypermobility disorders like EDS are extremely heterogeneous, right? It can be challenging to know when to hold back from physical activities that most people might love, but that people who've been diagnosed with connective tissue disorders need to be careful with because of higher risk of subluxations, injuries, delayed healing, that sort of thing. But when you're working as a circus artist or other athletic artist, your job is literally to push yourself to your limits. So as a physical therapist, as an artist yourself, and as someone with a connective tissue disorder, how do you help artistic athletes sort of reconcile those two things? Yeah, I think that that's the constant struggle is understanding where a person is at and where how to reconcile that with what their goals are or their career is. And I think regardless of what art form the person does, what activity they do, almost everybody when they first you know, start seeking healthcare or uh, work with me for the first time, everybody really needs to be told that, you know, your experience is valid, your symptoms are valid. You, the fact that your experience isn't like your peers is absolutely okay. And you're not like they, every, people are just so gaslit by themselves, sometimes by coaches, by healthcare providers. So I think just teaching them to listen to themselves and listen to their body signals is the first thing to do and the hardest part. I think across the board, the thing that I found most helpful for me personally and for my hypermobile patients who are very active and want to be very active with all of the, whether it's a dysautonomia symptom or joint pain or flare-ups, whatever issues they're having, the thing that is the most helpful is teaching them about heart rate variability and how to measure that and track that and use that just as something that you're always looking at and looking to, to almost get a preview as to where your body is that day and looking at the trends of where it's going. And just a bit of a backstory for people who might not be familiar with that term. This is something that um, a lot of the uh, wearable fitness devices and um uh, trackers use as a measure of autonomic function. So it basically tells you how recovered you are from the previous day's stressors, whether that be a work stressor, an emotional stressor, it tells you where your autonomic nervous system is. And it's something that, you know, you, if it's a bracelet app, a bracelet that's connected to an app that you wear or a ring that's connected to an app or just an app that you use on your phone every morning, it's a really, really good indicator that helps reconcile what people feel like, but maybe don't want to admit or fully accept with what their body is actually going through. And it's an objective measurement. And I find that so many artistic athletes are so used to just leaning into this circus hurts, no pain, no gain mentality that to give them this tool 
that helps them actually understand that what they're feeling is valid and can be measured, that helps people really at least start to embody, okay, this is, you know, what my HRV is this morning. I'm only 20% recovered. I am like in the red, so to speak. So today I'm going to take it a little bit easier, train a little bit easier. Um, and then on days that I have, uh, you know, I'm more recovered and my nervous system is more on board. I have more spoons available. Those are the days that you can do more. And I think just being able to track that and watch that is a really great way to get on top of flare-ups or, you know, getting into this chronic pain spiral that so many people get into. So really, I think regardless of what the person does or what their goals are, teaching them to understand the cues that their body is giving them and trust that and act on that is the best tool that you can give hands down. I love that. Teaching them to understand that the cues that their bodies are giving is, is the optimum way to train. I love that. That's fantastic. Yeah. And that's good. Cause like you said, Jen, you can use that regardless of whether you're a circus performer or somebody who's just trying to figure out how to get out of bed every day and take the dog for a walk or leave their house or, you know, cause we know that people, it's such a massive spectrum and people are at such very, very different places from a musculoskeletal standpoint. We know that it must be really, really challenging for people who are in something like circus. And they're, and like Jen said at the, um, at the beginning, just pushing themselves in that end range and, and pushing their body so hard physically. How do you help them with the risk benefit analysis, especially given the lack of data on the long-term effects of things like contortion and other exercises and activities that people do involving extreme ranges of motion, whether they have a connective tissue disorder or, you know, they're hypermobile for some other reason, you know, how do you kind of work with people to analyze those kinds of situations? Yeah, I think that that's a really tough balance because on one hand, we have the fragility narrative that's so prevalent in healthcare where healthcare providers will tell these people you're fragile. You can't do like, don't do anything, just do like gentle Pilates and maybe some swimming. But if you do more than that, you'll break yourself. So we have that fragility narrative. And then on the other end of the spectrum, if the person is already doing a lot of circus or dance or whatever it is that they're doing, those people are like, okay, I'm just going to push myself. So like as hard as I can. And there, there are issues with both ends of the spectrum. So I think that the the thing or the, the approach that I tend to take is just to have very frank discussions and be like, okay, you know, given what you do, A, you know, I think it's great when people are as active as their bodies allow within the parameters of, you know, what their body can tolerate. So I would always rather people be doing um, any sort of physical activity. And I think that with circus and especially for me personally with Ariel as well, once I started to hypertrophy and gain muscle mass, my symptoms got so much better. So I think that if you're on the fragility narrative end of the spectrum and you're afraid to do things, you're, you know, dealing with some kinesiophobia, being afraid of moving, then the education in the direction of, you know, you can really, um, you can take, take charge of your, of your musculoskeletal health and you can help yourself by slowly and progressively with coaching, working towards training more and hypertrophying 
more so that you can help your connective tissue protect your joints. But then on the other end of the spectrum, we have the people that just go way too hard, way too often, and that's not good either. So with them, it's a discussion of, okay, like what are your goals? If your goal is longevity and you want to be performing for 15 more years, 20 more years, then we need to have a discussion of what is sustainable. What are you doing in, you know, if you're performing, what are you doing in your act? Is that sustainable? Are you doing things that are well within your comfort zone? What are you doing on your off days? Are you taking rest days? I think that just the discussion of, okay, you need to, you need to start treating recovery and recovery days this with the same ferocity that you treat training days and performing days. It's just as important, if not more important. If you don't recover enough, you're not going to perform at your best. So just having those discussions about, you know, this is, these are things that you need to start thinking about if your goal is longevity and to perform more for longer. Um, and a lot of times people know this and they know that what they're doing isn't sustainable. But again, it's like they don't trust themselves and they don't want to give themselves permission to take rest days. And 95% of the time when we have this conversation and then, you know, the person starts uh, incorporating rest days or like a rest week or just any sort of regular deloading phase into their training, Every time they come back and they say, I was so scared to take five days off in a row, but the first day back training, I, you know, was able to do all of these things that I've been working on, but hadn't been able to accomplish. Or like, I just felt so much better and it didn't affect my training at all. And that's the type of thing that once they experience it, the buy-in is there, like they understand it. Um, but then also having the, the discussions about sometimes you're going to feel not great. And on those days, you have to prioritize whatever it is that you can do within the parameters of your job to offload on that day. Sometimes there's, there's not much they can do if they're in, you know, if they're touring with Cirque du Soleil, they have, you know, they have to perform, but there are often things that you can do within those parameters to still optimize recovery on days that you have to perform and train. So there are just so many different ways to, to start addressing that. But I think that, again, it's just about starting with what are your goals and what are you doing right now? And that's really interesting when you're talking about rest, because we know that that's when muscles do hypertrophy, right? You have to have that rest in there. But I think so often we think more is better. And culturally, we're kind of taught that. I remember before I started running into a lot of problems. Like I, you know, I would train and dance seven days a week and I'd, I had people tell me, Oh, you need to take a rest day. And I totally resisted that concept, but eventually, you know, <laughs> hopefully you figure out that that doesn't work. Like you said, the two extremes are, are equally problematic in different ways. I'm just curious with your expertise as a physical therapist and with the performers that you work with, have you noticed any predictive variables in terms of ones that are able to have a successful career? And I'm thinking myself, what, what I have seen and, and my experience with this is nowhere near like yours, but exactly what you just said about the ability to develop that muscle hypertrophy, because it seems like some people, no matter what they do, 
And I don't know if it's part of their physiology or their joint laxity is so extreme. Their, their connective tissue is not only lax, but it's also, it's also stiff. But is, are there certain things that you have observed as a physical therapist that they're like, yeah, when the person can do this, it seems like they're more likely to have a successful career. Yeah. I think, you know, definitely having the ability to maintain muscle mass is huge. Um, I think that there are so many different factors. I think about diet and their relationship with nutrition and food. I mean, I think that that is one of the main predictive variables for success, even just like outside of the hypermobility world, but certainly within hypermobility as well. I, I think that most of the predictive variables are really just like the core foundations of how to optimize being a human. So I think sleep, nutrition, hydration, those are the things. If they prioritize that, and have that as the foundation, then everything else is so much easier. But then the next thing that I think about is not necessarily a physical predictor or like a biomechanical predictor. It's more about their relationship and their trust in their body. So I think about the person who is comfortable talking to their coach and being like, list, like today, this is what I can do. What do you want? Like, how should we adapt within these parameters? Because I feel like this today, it's the person that really is secure in trusting themselves and trusting their cues. That's the one that I see as having the best success for longevity. I'm thinking about in particular, one performer that I worked with who, um, she was working with a, a circus company and she was, um, basically there from creation of the show. So she was the one that helped to choreograph most of that act that would then be performed by other people, you know, years and decades down the line when they would have, you know, different rotating artists come in. Um, but she got to choreograph what she wanted to do. And there was the, the coach suggested doing a neck hang and as one of the skills. And she was like, no, no, I would rather do something else. That's not sustainable for me. I don't think that that would be good for my body. And if I have to perform this 10 shows a week, then I would prefer not to do that. And of course she said it very gracefully, but she basically was like, I don't think that that would work for me. And the coach was like, great. What do you want to do? And obviously there's going to be so many different variables that happen with that. And, you know, you don't always have coaches that will be, understanding in that capacity. But I think the main factor is just, are you willing to stand up for yourself when you know that something isn't uh, going to serve you long-term? Well, and that's a really important thing for people to understand. Not everybody gets to have input on the choreography, right? And yeah. she was extraordinarily lucky to be able to have that conversation, but she was also enough of a professional and valued herself enough that she knew that she could say, yes or no to this. And a lot of times we look at what can I do for the next hour <laughs> or however long the rehearsal period is or however long the next show is. I, I remember auditioning for um, a Broadway sh a musical called Barnum, which is about the circus. And so they asked us, what tricks can you do? Everybody show us whatever you've got. And so they had all the dancers go across the floor and dancers were doing tumbling passes and doing all of these crazy, amazing things. And the choreographer said, great, thank you. Now everybody go back to the other side and please show me what tricks you can do eight shows a week. Yes. yes. <laughs> and everybody was like, huh? <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, everybody wants the job, but nobody stops. And I was really grateful to the choreographer for saying that and understanding that most of the people would not be able to sustain, sustain those fancy tricks that they did. Um, so that's something important that we have to learn whatever 
art field we are in? What what is it that we are doing that that is truly sustainable that we can do? Um, and when we look at that, we we also talk about um, circus arts, dance, skating. We talk and gymnastics. We talk about these things requiring a fair amount of sacrifice. So trying to find that balance of we understand there's some sort of um, sacrifice that people talk about having to make for it. Um, are there sacrifices that artists will have to make to be able to do these end range long-term things? Or do you think, no, they should be able to, how do you feel about that? Yeah. I mean, I think that of, of course there are going to be sacrifices along the way. And I think that they're going to look very different depending on the person and what the person considers as a sacrifice. Maybe for some people, uh, you know, a traveling and touring career is just not sustainable for them. And maybe they love traveling, but they know that that's, you know, they try it out and it just doesn't work for their body. And maybe that's what sacrifice looks like. Um, maybe it looks like, you know, if they're for recreational students, maybe sacrifice is, you know, on the day of your favorite class, you wake up and you just feel like garbage and, you're like, I really want to do this class. This is my favorite class. I look forward to this all week. But if I do this class, I know that the next, you know, five to seven to however many days after will be really, really rough. And I would rather sacrifice this now than sacrifice the next eight days of my life to recover from this. I think that it really depends. And maybe I, th I think for a lot of people too, sacrifice looks like not doing the cool trick or not working towards the skill that everyone wants or the skill that everyone thinks is the one thing that will get you hired. I think that that's it. I think that definitely sacrifice is part of this, but it's going to look very different depending on what the, what each person considers as a sacrifice. And I think that's such an important point to make because we're so used to, as athletic artists, to sacrificing our body, right? Dancers are like, my toes are going to be ugly. <laughs> that's just the way it's going to be, which that's a whole other conversation. Does that need to happen or not? Um, and I know circus artists, you guys talk about um, losing a fair amount of feeling, like ankle hangs and that sort of thing. You're like, yeah, this is the way it's going to be. And so we're so quick to say, my knees are going to be shot when I'm older, but I'm a dancer. And so I'm going to go for it. My hips are going to be, and we we're so quick to sort of go that way, but we don't think about sacrificing on the other side, which is the emotional side of saying, I'm going to make the sacrifice of saying no. I'm going to make the sacrifice of staying in bed today. I'm going to make the sacrifice of choosing only to do non-touring shows. And people have to look at that not as a sign of weakness, but as an, a sacrifice, like you said, in order to maintain a long-term and healthy career. So I hope, I hope people are listening to that. Now, if people, if people aren't quite to that place, um, because you work with dancers and circus artists and that sort of thing, as a physical therapist, have you ever, do you ever need to have that hard conversation with artists about the professional choices that they're making, the things that they're pushing their bodies to do? Yeah, absolutely. And that's for sure the hardest part of this is, you know, when I see a person who's just really not listening to their body and making too many physical sacrifices, like you mentioned, as far as the, you know, my hips are going to be shot when I, by the time I'm 35 or my knees or there's no cartilage or, you know, whatever their physical sacrifices. When I see that, the, 
the conversation is always really hard because most of the time that person isn't ready to have that, or it's not that they're not ready to have the conversation, but it's often the first conversation that they'll have with the healthcare provider where they're like, ah, you, you should probably, you know, think really hard about what you want to do. And is this achieving your long-term goals? And I think the reason that they're such hard conversations is because usually it takes such a long time of hearing that from one person, maybe from another person, maybe seeing someone who's uh, 15, 20 years down the line and what their, what they look like and what their experience was. Um, It takes so many data points to really embody that for a lot of artists. So I, yeah, I think the conversation, I, I never tell people don't do this or you can't do this, but I always frame it as like, listen, you have a few different choices here. <laughs> Door number one, you continue to sacrifice everything. And, you know, in five years, you probably won't feel so great. And this is what that will likely look like for you, given your current trajectory. That's door number one. Door number two is you start making compromises with your training, with your skills, with what you're doing, with how you're treating your body. And then this is what that looks like. And it's just like, these are your options. This is what I see as likely outcomes for you based on my clinical experience and my education. And then I kind of just let them uh, percolate and let that simmer in their brains. And then usually they'll, you know, come back and it'll be like a, an email or something like, Hey, so remember when you said this, can we talk a little bit more about what that looks like? And it, but it's like, I've like, there's no way that you can rush that process for people. They really have to go through it themselves. I just try to fully educate them on what the consequence, what the likely consequences of their choices will be. And I've, I've heard something similar from the dancers that I work with that when a physical therapist or a medical professional says to them, you have to do this now, or you have to, st-, it's a very instinctive, shut the door reaction. No, I don't. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like you exactly. said, you, 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 you are going to be fragile and you're like, no, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But when someone says, Hey, just giving you the information, here's the two options and just leave it there. The, the performer gets to go away and process it and chew on it on their own time and then come back. And I see them return again and again to that conversation because they feel led to, let's, let's dig into that a little bit more. Let's talk about the le- little bit. What did you mean when you said this? Or what do you really think will happen with this way? And they start to gather the information for themselves. You really can't push an artist, and you don't want to push an artist to make that decision, right? You just want to give them that information. And I think a lot of artists are have that fear of going to a medical professional in the first place because they don't want to be told, oh, you have this and you can't do this. And I always tell my dancers, listen, whatever exists in your body already exists. The doctor or the therapist or whoever is just going to, to put a name to it and describe it for you you can choose to ignore them. Like there's, you know, there's nothing, but you'll have more information. At least you'll be rejecting <laughs> from a, a more educated point of view. Right. Um, so I want, I hope people are hearing it's good to get that information and it's great to work with someone like yourself that can say, here are those places and here are the two options. Do you ever see a pivot point where the risks outweigh the benefits and you want to encourage them that way? Or do you think that everybody's pivot point is going to be different. 
everyone's pivot point is so different. And usually, I, I think if I had to generalize, usually what happens is, you know, we have the conversation, they change or they don't change. If they don't change their habits and their training patterns, often the next time I see them is when they're injured and then they can't perform. And then it's the same, it's, it's a little bit, there's more urgency behind it. I think injuries are often the pivot points of, oh, I'm not infallible. Like I have to start taking care of my body. And this is a consequence if I don't do that. Um, injuries are incredible teachers, definitely. <laughs> so it's horrible and nobody wants to be injured, but they can be incredibly enlightening. Mm-hmm. And how important do you think it is for someone who's hypermobile to have a trainer or a coach who really understands hypermobility and, and how do you advise people to find one? Yeah, I think that that's something that if, if someone can work with a coach or a healthcare provider who understands hypermobility and understands their discipline, that's just like the magic ticket. I think more than anything, it's just knowing that you have a coach or a healthcare provider that actually gets you and you don't have to do all of the backstory of explaining like, this is what, um, this is what this disorder is. This is what it looks like for me. These are the things that I need from you. Um, I mean, certainly there are amazing coaches who don't have a lot of, um, experience working with hypermobility that are willing to learn and do all of those things, but it's just, it's such a big exhale when someone can work with a coach or a provider who really understands them. Um, I think the best way I it's hard because I think that these are still this, these are still disorders that are relatively, we don't really see a lot of coaches or healthcare providers who have this body of knowledge existing. So it's really hard to find somebody, but I think asking around and asking communities and, um, you know, talking to other healthcare providers who may not be in your area, but, you know, work with hypermobile humans, um, just getting referrals and recommendations. Um, I always, if somebody really can't find anybody that works with uh, hypermobility or doesn't know how to find that person, then I usually will say, okay, try to find like a dance PT or a gymnastics PT or a PT that specializes in artistic athletes. And they'll at least have um, a step up, I think, in that understanding. Yeah, that, that definitely makes sense. And, and we know that the, the awareness of, of EDS, other connective tissue disorders, hypermobility, all of these things has changed so dramatically. Um, in fact, I just came across a paper, I just like yesterday or the day before that kind of, you know, it's just like a basic science paper about, uh, you know, what they're seeing under the microscope and the different tissues. And it's just like, amazing how quickly all of this information is changing. And do you, have you seen an increase in the number of people that either have been diagnosed with a connective tissue disorder or that have hypermobility that they may or may not have been diagnosed? Um, are you seeing greater numbers in the people that you're working with? And with amongst those people, um, what are you seeing in terms of how successful they are with their, with their careers? So like in terms of trends, what have you been noticing? Yeah, I think in the past few years, absolutely so many more. I mean, just anecdotally, I'm getting so many more emails and messages from people being like, hey, I just saw this post about hypermobility and I see that you special, or you work with uh, people with hypermobility disorders. 
Um, how do I go about getting diagnosed? How do I know if I should get diagnosed? And the, the awareness of these issues is really just um, becoming more and more common. So I think that with that, um, making it a little bit more of, you know, not such an outlier term that people hear, I think that that's a really great step in the direction of helping people who have all of these different seemingly unrelated issues with their body and their physical health, that they're seeing this connection under the umbrella of hypermobility spectrum disorders. Um, and I think that that's something that's just been really cool where people are like, oh, I thought this was just me. I thought that I was the only one that had this. I thought everything was unrelated and I was just like this. And it's just really cool to see people understanding their bodies a little bit more and understanding how to take care of their bodies so that they can do whatever it is that they love for longer. So what can you tell our listeners about why they should recommend this podcast to others? I think for that, I mean, I think that that's a, a great example because this podcast is such a great way to um, kind of like decode your body, especially for artistic athletes. You know, for so many of us, we've normalized extreme hyperextension and working ourselves to the point of exhaustion and fatigue and really glamorizing and romanticizing pain and this physical sacrifice of our bodies. And I think that what this podcast does is, you know, it's a really great way to shed light to the fact that we don't have to do that and also shouldn't be doing that. And we can still exceed, like, like excel at our art form without sacrificing all of our, our physical well-being. And I think that just all of the, the number of experts that are on this podcast, I mean, just like scrolling through, you know, the past year or so of, of everybody that you've had, it's so cool. It's like, if someone has ever wondered about, you know, nutrition and hypermobility or, um, you know, neurodivergence and hypermobility, all of these things that we really just think are unrelated, you can probably find something on the podcast that you've discussed, which I think is awesome. Well, thank you. That's what we, that's what we are hoping to do. So we, we hope that it's a place where people can dip in and learn a little bit more. And as we said at the beginning, it's a very nonlinear process trying to figure out your wonky body and how to handle your wonky body. So it's something that comes piecemeal to everybody. And, um, and we're glad that, that we can be a part of it. So thank you for that. And we're so glad that you are a team member and share your knowledge with us. Um, is there anything, speaking of sharing your knowledge, that you wanted to cover today that we didn't discuss? I think we, had, we hit a pretty good variety of topics. <laughs> um, I can't think of anything, anything else that is immediately jumping to mind. So if people have loved what you've had to say today and want to learn more or reach out to you, where can they get in touch with you? Where can they find you? Uh, definitely on Instagram. That's probably a good launching point uh, on Instagram. I'm at circ underscore physio and that has my bio has links to everything else that would be relevant. My website is also circphysio.com. So those are good places to start. Awesome. Thank you. Well, you have been listening to Bendy Bodies with the Hypermobility MD. Today, we have been speaking with Dr. Jennifer Crane, physical therapist specializing in circus arts, Bendy Bodies team member and founder of MyFlex by Cirque Physio. Jen, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us today. Thanks for having me. 
Thank you for joining us for this episode of Bendy Bodies with the Hypermobility MD, where we explore the intersection of health and hypermobility for dancers and other aesthetic athletes. If you found this information valuable, please share it with a colleague or friend and leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Remember to subscribe so you won't miss future episodes. If you want to follow us on Instagram, it's at Bendy underscore bodies and our website is www.bendybodies.org. If you want to follow Bendy Bodies founder and co-host Dr. Bluestein on Instagram, it's at hypermobilitymd, all one word, and her website is www.hypermobilitymd.com. If you want to follow co-host Jennifer Milner on Instagram, it's at Jennifer period Milner, M-I-L-N-E-R. And her website is www.jennifer-milner.com. Thank you for helping us spread the word about hypermobility and associated conditions. We want to hear from you. Please email us at info at bendybodies.org to share feedback. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are solely of the co-host and their guests. They do not necessarily represent the views and opinions of any organization. The thoughts and opinions do not constitute medical advice and should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever. This information is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease as this information is for educational purposes only and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please refer to your local qualified health practitioner for all medical concerns. We'll catch you next time on the Bendy Podcast. This episode of the Bendy Bodies Podcast was brought to you by Bauerfine Premium Braces and Supports, designed to provide joint stability and pain relief.